Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Supplemental Episode, The Life and Death of Matahari. Before we begin this week, I'm excited to announce that my summer hiatus is quickly coming to an end, and I'm looking forward to resuming the show on a more full-time basis in the coming weeks. Unfortunately, I'm unable to commit to a definitive date as of this moment, but I'm aiming to get things going again by the end of the month. In the meantime, though, I have another standalone episode for you, and this episode is a little different from what we're used to. Instead of our usual approach, our focus for this episode is a single individual, and that individual is the exotic dancer turned convicted spy, Matahari. Matahari is without a doubt one of history's best-known spies, subject to numerous books, documentaries, and theater productions. Yet her story remains shrouded in myth and misunderstanding. Popular depictions usually portray her as a serial manipulator, a modern-day siren who used her sexual charisma to seduce men into expelling sensitive war material. This is the Matahari we are most familiar with, a beautiful, yet cunning woman who operated outside contemporary norms. While there is a kernel of truth behind these depictions, the popular story of Matahari cannot hold a candle to the real one. Matahari's real story is not the cloak-and-dagger tale most of us want it to be. Instead, it is a sobering tale, which tells the story of a woman who fell victim to extraordinary circumstances. As we'll see, Matahari was another casualty of the Great War, and while she never held a rifle, she too was scooped up into the infernal machine. And my hope for this little episode here is to offer a glimpse into who Matahari really was, and expel some of the myths about this controversial yet fascinating figure. Born in the Dutch town of Leovarden on August 7, 1876, Margaretha Getruda Zelli was the eldest of four children. Her father, a hat maker, had made his fortune through the oil industry, allowing his five children to attend the most exclusive schools in Holland. As a young girl, Margaretha was fiercely independent. She regularly challenged her teachers and drew the ire of the school's headmaster for her repeated violations of the school's dress code. It was clear that Margaretha was bound for a different path, and although her childhood was a happy one over and all, a turn of events in 1893 forced her to grow up fast. That year, her father was forced into bankruptcy, and filed for divorce soon after. Her mother was heartbroken. Already in ill health, she died the following year, and Margaretha was sent to live with her uncle in The Hague. Life in The Hague did not suit Margaretha one bit. She first studied to become a kindergarten teacher, but was later expelled when it was revealed she had an affair with the married headmaster. While we'll never know who initiated the affair, Margaretha learned something through the ordeal. She learned that men found her irresistible, and were willing to go to great lengths to earn her affection. Although she was well-read and highly intelligent, her allure owed much to the fact she looked nothing like your typical 19th century Dutch woman. Despite being of Caucasian stock, Margaretha had black hair, brown eyes, and dark olive skin, a stark contrast to her blonde, fair-skinned siblings. 
In fact, the only thing that hinted towards her Dutch ancestry was her height. At 18, she stood 5 foot 10. Considered exotic by the standards of the time, Margaretha understood her beauty was her ticket to a better life, and in the summer of 1894, she used her sexuality to secure her first and only marriage. Bored of life in Holland, Margaretha yearned for a fresh start. One morning, she discovered a classified in the local paper. Its author was Captain Rudolf MacLeod, a 39-year-old colonial army officer stationed in the Dutch East Indies. MacLeod was seeking to marry a girl of pleasant character, and Margaretha knew that marriage to such a man would provide her with the escape she so desperately sought. To entice MacLeod, she hired a photographer and sent him several provocative images, alongside a letter pledging herself to him. MacLeod was smitten and invited her to join him in the East Indies. The couple wed in 1895, and their marriage produced two children, a son, Norman, in 1897, and daughter, Nan, in 1898. On the surface, it appeared that Margaretha's dreams had come true. MacLeod was given a promotion, a pay raise, and a permanent posting to the island of Java. The family then moved into a large country estate on the outskirts of Malang, a city prized by the Dutch for its mild climate and stunning rural vistas. From then on, however, Margaretha's dream quickly devolved into a nightmare. Her husband was a tough professional soldier, a veteran of several colonial wars, including the decades-long Aeak War, a conflict which began in 1873 and would not formally end until after the Second World War. MacLeod had his demons, and to deal with those demons, he drowned them in alcohol, transforming himself into a brute that beat and tormented his wife on a regular basis. He was jealous of the attention she received from the other officers, and had convinced himself she was part of some army-wide conspiracy, possibly a spy sent from Amsterdam to erode his career from the inside. MacLeod began to spend more time away from home, leaving Margaretha alone with their two young children. To escape her domestic misery, Margaretha would often leave their children in the care of the household servants, and take long walks alone, wandering the island and experimenting with the local food, fashion, and arts. It was during one trip when she encountered the Malayan style of interpretive dance she would later adopt into her routines. These slow, undulating movements of the dancers were unlike anything she had seen before. But what really intrigued her were the stories they told. Tales of tragedy, love, lust, sadness, and of course, transformation. Margaretha felt an instant connection. She hired a local coach, but was soon forced to abandon her lessons when MacLeod discovered them practicing in the atrium. By the summer of 1899, their marriage was firmly on the rocks. The family relocated to Sumatra, but were immediately struck by a horrific turn of events. Their children had fallen deathly ill soon after the move. Their daughter, Nan, would eventually recover, but their son Norman was not so lucky. The boy passed away just shy of his third birthday. After Norman's untimely death, the couple did not hide their mutual hatred. They blamed each other for the loss of their son and the gossip surrounding the family became too much to bear. They returned to Holland in 1902, 
and entered a bitter divorce battle soon after. In the end, MacLeod won custody of their daughter, after he used the private images Margaretha sent him before their marriage to convince the judge she was unfit to be a mother. The judge bought the argument, and at just 28 years of age, Margaretha was on the streets of Amsterdam, destitute and alone. She would never see MacLeod or her daughter again. Unwilling to stay in Holland, Margaretha bought a ticket to Paris, where she found work as an artist model, actress, and most likely a prostitute. It was during this time when she began performing in circus dance troupes, using the Malayan techniques she acquired from the East Indies. Her slow, undulating movements hypnotized audiences, and she became the star of the show, eventually earning her own solo spot and eclipsing the other performers. A profound and fateful transformation was taking place within the young Dutch woman. Colored by her travels and sorrows in the East Indies, she poured her heart and soul into her routine, shedding her previous life and emerging as something new. By 1904, Margaretha Getruda Zelli ceased to exist. In her place was Mata Hari, the exotic dancer who would soon take Europe by storm. In Malay dialect, Matahari means sun, or eye of the day, and one does not need to be a metaphorical genius to see the connection. Matahari was a new beginning for Margaretha, provocative, flirtatious, and carefree. In the first decade of the 20th century, Orientalism and mysticism were growing fads in Europe. The Paris Exposition of 1889 had shown Europeans a world beyond their own, and Matahari's emergence tapped perfectly into that curiosity. She became must-see entertainment. Her biographer, Julie Wheelwright, remarks that her performances had touched a raw erotic nerve that fed seamlessly into powerful myths about the sensuality and licentiousness of Asian women. To quote Wheelwright, Her past was transformed into a chapter more befitting a sacred oriental temple dancer. From 1906 to 1912, Mata Hari was an entertainment juggernaut. She made her fame in Paris, but soon expanded to other cities like Berlin, Vienna, Rome, and London. At the height of her career, she was among the most popular dancers in Europe. Known for her carefree and provocative style, she stirred up controversy everywhere she went, often blurring the lines between taboo and the norm. At a time when strict gender roles were the norm of middle and upper class women, Mata Hari's routines were unlike anything Europe had seen before. She would end her performances wearing little more than a jewel bra and some ornaments on her arms and head. A British reviewer described the captivating performance in the following words, quote, The door opened. A tall, dark figure glided in. Her arms were folded upon her breast beneath a mass of flowers. She was enshrouded in various veils of delicate hues, symbolizing beauty, love, youth, chastity, voluptuousness, and passion. The first notes of a plaintive weird melody were sounded, and with slow, undulating, tiger-like movements, she advanced towards the god. Then the movements became more and more intense, more feverish, more eager. She first threw flowers, and then divested herself one by one of the veils, implying that, as a sacrifice, she gave beauty, youth, and love, 
and finally worked to a state of frenzy, unclasped her belt, and fell in a swoon at Siva's feet. End quote. The press were all over her, and her betrayal in the media has muddied the line between reality and fiction. In truth, Mata Hari hammed it up for the reporters. She invented her own past, telling reporters she was born along the Ganges, and instructed by the most sacred gurus in the Far East. None of this was true, of course, but she maintained the facade in the public eye. Newspapers refer to her as the Red Dancer, and ticket sales skyrocketed. For the ultra-chic, it wasn't enough to just see her perform. You had to see her in Paris, and this created a pseudo-rivalry between the great cities. At the height of her success, Mata Hari was considered by many to be one of the most desirable women in Europe. Historian Pat Shipman writes, quote, Her languid, graceful style of moving, her dark eyes and luxurious hair, telegraphed her sexuality to any male in her presence. She drew every man's lustful admiration and every woman's envy. End quote. She acquired a sleuth of lovers, usually older men like government officials, military officers, and affluent businessmen. Among her most famous lovers included the industrialist Emile Guimet, French ambassador Jules Cambon, and an aristocratic German officer named Alfred Kiepert, who was responsible for introducing Matahari to Berlin audiences. Kiepert went so far as to purchase a swanky Berlin apartment for her to use during her visits to the city, and provided her with jewels, silverware, and clothing. Mata Hari, the exotic dancer, enjoyed six years of success, but by 1912, her time in the limelight was coming to a close. Now 36 years of age, she was flanked by a myriad of cheaper imitators, and marquee bookings became scarce. During the final years of peace, she made the transition from dancer to courtesan. She performed fewer shows, but remained in the public eye by dining and mingling, with some of the best-connected people in Europe. The once-adoring Parisian audiences grew tired of her. In their eyes, she was no longer an artist, but a glorified exhibitionist, someone who needed to be seen and had no scruples about selling their friendship to the highest bidder. The French newspapers, which had greeted her favorably, grew lukewarm, then chilling. Rejected by her adoptive country, Mata Hari spent more time in Berlin, where her presence was still appreciated by the male aristocracy. She met Crown Prince Wilhelm, and rumor has it that one of her lovers took her to the German army maneuvers in Silesia. Much of what Mata Hari got up to while in Berlin is open to interpretation, but what cannot be argued is the disdain she garnered from the other nations, France in particular. The French grew increasingly distrustful as their relationship with Germany soured. Once war was declared, the French accused her of being a wanton, promiscuous woman, and perhaps a dangerous seductress. Given the circumstances, it is not surprising that the Germans were the first to tap her as a potential agent. The Germans, you see, were looking to recruit well-connected people as spies, and Mata Hari was an ideal candidate. First, she was Dutch, and as a citizen of a neutral country, she was not subject to the same travel restrictions. And second, her extensive travels made her into a brilliant linguist, fluent in five languages, 
English, French, Dutch, German, and Russian. In the autumn of 1915, Mata Hari was living back in The Hague when she was approached by the German honorary consul, a man by the name of Karl Kromer. Kromer offered her 20,000 francs, equivalent to $61,000 in today's currency, to spy for Germany. His only instructions were for her to return to Paris and glean whatever information she could regarding French war aims. Short on cash and badly in debt, Matahari accepted the payment. Cromer then gave her a code name, Agent H21, and added her to the spy dossier. During her trial, French prosecutors would point to Cromer's payment as proof of Matahari's crimes. While she did accept the money, at no point did she ever engage in actual espionage. Turns out, Mata Hari was a terrible spy, and her first quote-unquote assignment was a huge nothing burger. Cromer received no valuable information, and that's because Mata Hari was never in a position to gain any. The circles she ran with were not the most reliable sources regarding military matters. There were folks who relied on gossip and hearsay to hide their own ignorance. In short, Matahari accepted payment for a job she had no intention or any hope of completing. But here's the kicker. What Cromer's 20,000 francs did do was allow her to continue her lavish lifestyle, traveling with large quantities of luggage while being flanked by an entourage of porters. Under normal circumstances, the Matahari travel caravan would not be cause for suspicion, but during wartime she stuck out like a sore thumb and her refusal to bend a circumstance eventually got her into trouble. In December 1915, Matahari was stopped by British police at Folkestone. Under Britain's Defense of the Realm Act, any ship operating in the English Channel was subject to review. Matahari had been traveling to Paris via England, when the ship she was traveling on docked at Folkestone for inspection. Each passenger was questioned individually. Matahari told the inspector she was heading to Paris to discuss a new dancing contract. However, when the inspectors pressed for more information, she could not provide any more details as to whom she was meeting or where the meetings were taking place. This small gap in her story convinced the inspectors to pull her aside for more questioning. When asked again about her business in Paris, Matahari slipped up. She now claimed her trip was personal, that she was planning to sell her home and move back to the Netherlands. As you can imagine, this change of story did not go over well with the inspectors. They searched her belongings but found nothing out of the ordinary, and after a few tense hours, Matahari was allowed to proceed. Before her ship parted, the inspectors made copies of her travel permits and personal records. One copy was sent to London, and the other was forwarded to the Duzemi Bureau, the French Counterintelligence Bureau. Whether she knew it or not, Matahari was now a person of interest to Franco-British intelligence services, and although she managed to slip the door once, it was not long before it slammed shut behind her. One week after her near arrest at Folkestone, a memo alleging that Matahari had been paid 15,000 francs from the German embassy in Holland circulated through MI5 
the memo read that she had taken this payment to, quote, undertake an important mission that will profit the Germans, end quote. The memo's author, British agent Sir Richard Tinsley, recommended that Matahari be barred from entering the UK. If she was caught, she would be arrested and sent to Scotland Yard. Matahari spent the next three months in Paris, swooning, dining, and enjoying life in the wartime capital to the fullest. She reacquainted with old friends and lovers, but that was the extent of her attempts at espionage. Cromer grew frustrated by the lack of progress, and accused Matahari of stealing the 20,000 francs to cover her own expenses. But while Cromer saw nothing of value, the same cannot be said for one tenacious member of the French Secret Service. In August 1916, Matahari would meet Captain Georges Ledoux, head of the Dujemi Bureau, and the man most responsible for her arrest and execution. Captain Georges Ledoux was near fanatical in his investigation. His agents shadowed her every move. They followed her to restaurants, coffee shops, boutiques, and nightclubs. They read her mail, and kept a detailed log of her daily routines, whom she met, and what time she returned to her hotel. Despite all the effort, Ledoux was unable to find anything of value. Matahari, after all, was not engaging in espionage. But Ledoux was convinced of her guilt, and he was determined to find something incriminating one way or another. In all fairness, it was Matahari's own missteps which kept Ledoux on the trail. You see, Matahari often justified her extensive travels as dancing arrangements, and apparently no other agent had bothered to follow up on her claim. Ledoux, on the other hand, had, and when he contacted the venues, he was told they had no arrangements with the one and only Matahari. So how was this single, 40-year-old former dancer affording this lifestyle, when so many French families were living without coal, clothing, or foodstuffs? Like the rest of Paris, Ledoux was caught up in the spy psychosis sweeping across the country. The great battles of Verdun and the Somme were exacting a horrific toll, creating an ominous cloud which hung over Paris like a lead balloon. That August, Matahari sought escape, and decided to take a trip to Vittel, a small commune in northeastern France. When she arrived at Vittel, Ledoux approached her with an offer. He needed proof that she was in fact a German agent, so to obtain this information, he turned to his favorite device, entrapment. He offered Matahari a job with the French Secret Service, turning her into a double agent. By this point, Matahari was preoccupied with other matters. She had fallen in love with a young Russian officer named Vladimir Maslov, who was fighting alongside the French on the Western Front. Maslov had been wounded in a Fajdin attack that summer, and Matahari needed the funds to ensure she and Maslov could eventually marry. To get this, Matahari played Ledoux like a fiddle. She agreed to work for the French service on principle, but for compensation, she wanted upwards of one million francs, and promised Ledoux she would resume her affairs with senior German officers, notably Crown Prince Wilhelm. This was music to Ledoux's ears. 
More caught up in the fact that Matahari had just confirmed his suspicions, he did not stop to consider if what she said was even true. Had he done a bit more research, he would have known that Matahari never had an affair with the crown prince. She had performed for him on a number of occasions in the past, yes, but that was the extent of their relationship. Matahari had given Ledoux empty promises, but Ledoux was playing a different sort of game. For Ledoux, remember, the end goal was not obtaining German secrets, but to gain proof of Matahari's duplicity. Having ensured the services of this Blade Runner, Ledoux instructed Matahari to return to Holland. Ledoux never asked her for specific information, never targeted a specific man for her to seduce, nor did he provide reliable means of communication. In short, Matahari was left to her own devices. The situation was fluid to say the least, and had Matahari been the spy mastermind she is often depicted to be, she would have known things were a bit off. But since she had no intention of carrying out the task, the situation worked to her advantage. However, things would quickly unravel. En route to Holland, Matahari's ship was stopped by British police at Falmouth. When questioned by officers, she revealed she was working on behalf of French intelligence. Ledoux was contacted for confirmation, but Ledoux only muddied the waters further. In response to the British inquiry, he replied that he was, quote, pretending to employ her in order, if possible, to obtain definitive proof she was working for the Germans, end quote. Ledoux's response did little to quell British suspicions. They barred Matahari from entering Holland, and instead put her on a ship bound for Madrid. Matahari would remain in Madrid until January 1917. During that time, she fell in with a man named Arnold Kale, who worked in the German embassy. The two struck up a friendship, and it seems that Matahari may have had a change of heart, embracing her new role as a double agent. To gain Kale's trust, she told him she was a German agent embedded with the French. Her spy codename, H21, was still listed in the German dossier, so as far as Kale was concerned, her story checked out. But there were machinations going on behind the scenes. Although Matahari was actively trying to assist Ledoux in what she thought was a real operation, German spy networks were not sitting by idly. Soon after Matahari arrived in Madrid, French authorities intercepted a telegram sent from the German embassy, which highlighted the activities of the so-called Agent H-21. The telegram was damning, and reeks of sabotage. It read, quote, Agent H-21 has arrived here. She has pretended to accept offers of service for French intelligence, and to carry out trips to Belgium for the head of the service, end quote. How Matahari was exposed as Agent H-21 remains a matter of debate, but the most likely culprit was Kale himself, who sent the telegram through an insecure channel, fully aware that the French were listening in. It seems that Kale had been warned about Matahari by his own intelligence group, and under direct orders from Berlin, was instructed to give her up to the French. In any event, the telegram finally gave Ledoux his smoking gun, 
it was all the evidence he needed to present his case. Matahari returned to Paris in early February. Unaware of Ledoux's betrayal, she expected to be rewarded for her services. But instead, she spent the next month in a state of crippling anxiety. Ledoux refused to see her, and she had not been paid a single franc. And her lover, Maslov, had gone MIA. Living off the last of her savings, Matahari moved from hotel to hotel, while Ledoux put the final touches on her arrest warrant. The fateful day arrived on February the 13th, 1917. The police arrived outside the Elysee Palace Hotel in Paris. The police commissioner and five officers knocked loudly on the door of room 131. A tall, plumpish woman, wearing an expensive lace-trimmed dressing gown, opened the door. She identified herself as Madame Zelie MacLeod. The arresting officers then read her the list of charges, attempted espionage, complicity, and passing intelligence to an enemy power. While a shaken Matahari got dressed, the police ransacked the room. Besides her passport and several travel permits, they found nothing incriminating. Still, she was rushed to the Palace of Justice, where she was interrogated by Magistrate Pierre Bouchardon. Matahari understood the seriousness of the charges, but argued she had been set up and was a victim of entrapment. Matahari maintained the story for 24 hours, but Bouchardon was a hard man and tough interrogator, and eventually he got her to crack. Matahari confessed to taking the 20,000 francs from Cromer, but swore she never fulfilled her end of the bargain. This part was true, as most of the payment went to covering her travel expenses and lavish lifestyle. She told Bouchardon, quote, A courtesan, I admit it. A spy? Never. I have always lived for love and pleasure. End quote. Matahari was being sincere, but this meant nothing to men like Bouchardon and Ledoux. The interrogation finally ended after 72 hours, but as she rose from her seat, Bouchardon informed her she would not be released. Instead, she was sent to a squalid, rat-infested cell in the Saint-Lazare prison, where she spent the next five months in total isolation. Her only contact was her elderly lawyer, who happened to be a former lover. After three months, she fell into a state of depression. She pleaded for mercy and the chance to see Maslov. Her arrest had been no secret. It made headlines around Europe. Despite multiple letters to the Dutch embassy, she received no assistance from her native homeland. Her trial, when it began in July 1917, was a total farce from the beginning. The defense was denied permission to cross-examine the prosecution, and personal testimonies were deemed inadmissible. The only witnesses called to the stand were the men who helped arrest her, namely... Bouchardon and Ledoux. Statements were taken out of context, and some evidence was outright manipulated. For example, prosecutors tried to claim she had sold battle plans and shipping agendas to the Germans, which resulted in the deaths of 50,000 men, an accusation without a shred of evidence or common sense. But perhaps the most damaging accusation came from Bouchardon, who accused her of being a man-eater.
saying, quote, Without scruples, accustomed to make use of men, she is the type of woman who was born to be a spy. End quote. Within 45 minutes, the trial was over. The tribunal found her guilty of crimes against France, and sentenced Matahari to death. In the early hours of October 15, 1917, she was taken from her cell and moved to an army barrack on the outskirts of Paris. Dressed in a blue coat and tri-corner hat, she marched in front of the firing squad, 12 men in all. Flanked by a priest and two nuns, Matahari waved the right to a blindfold. She stood unbound and gazed steadfastly at her executioners. When the hour approached, the priest, nun, and captain of the guard stepped away. There was no final claim of innocence. Her last act was to blow the soldiers a kiss. The guard gave the order, and Matahari, the exotic dancer and courtesan, was instantly killed. She was 41 years of age. The story of Matahari does not end there. After her death, outlandish tales began to circulate. Rumors of a miraculous escape from the firing squad, to increasingly strident denunciations of her treason, Matahari was immortalized in death. The sheer ridiculousness of her story, fueled by her own contradictions and cockamamie prosecution, allows her narrative to be constructed in numerous ways. Books, films, and plays have been based on her life, often portraying her as some dangerous seductress, a woman with a rose in one hand and blade in the other. But as her biographer Julie Wheelwright has argued, Matahari was the universal anti-hero, a woman who put self-preservation above national loyalty. It is difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to Matahari. Maybe she wasn't entirely innocent. She is certainly guilty of playing a dangerous game, and her refusal to bend to circumstance did not win her any favors. Matahari was too vivid a personality to be the master spy men like Ledoux wanted her to be. But when her trial began in the summer of 1917, the disastrous Nivelle Offensive had brought the French army to the brink of ruin. Mutinies had broken out, casting a shadow over France's war effort. A new government under George Clemenceau had come to power, utterly committed to winning the war. Spies, especially female spies, were convenient scapegoats. And in this context, having one to pin all the blame on was most convenient for the new government. In the view of her biographer Wheelwright, Matahari symbolized women's danger. An independent woman, a divorcee, a citizen of a neutral country, a courtesan and a dancer, which made her a perfect scapegoat for the French, who were then losing the war. According to Wheelwright, she was kind of held up as an example of what might happen if your morals were too loose. While Germany exculpated her in the 1930s, Matahari remains a controversial figure in France and her native Holland. Much of the evidence used against her has been destroyed or remains classified. But maybe one day, we will finally complete the picture of who Margarita Getruda Zelli, the tortured trophy wife turned national pariah, truly was. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com 
There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or you can email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to thank our most recent donors, Simon, Robert, Michael, and Jane. Thank you all very much for your kind contributions. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been a supplemental episode of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.